Hi, this is Margarida from Stories of When, and in this episode of the podcast, Dr. Claire mentions the influence of Philip Asher, who has unfortunately passed away briefly after our interview. As such, we would like to take a small moment to acknowledge and remember his life, work, and influence in many neuroscientists, including Claire. This is Stories of When, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Margarida from Stars of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Claire Viart. Dr. Claire is a principal investigator at the Paris Brain Institute in France, and her lab investigates how internal and external sensory cues are integrated to shape movements and posture during active locomotion using the zebrafish as a model. Thank you, Claire, for being here today with me. Thank you very much, Margarita. <laughs> okay, so to start off, as we usually do, I would like to ask you, how did you first become interested in studying the brain? So what, what is your neuroscience origin story? Yeah. So I actually came to biology really fascinated by oceanography. So I was really, okay. um, really into collecting uh, and, and looking at animals from the sea. Um, and then when I did my studies, uh, I was a student here in the Ecole Normale. Um, what happened is that um, it was a very exciting time where Philippe Acher was studying the NMDA receptor mm -hmm. uh, with many of his colleagues. Um, and it became clear that um, we had an opportunity to use optical methods for looking at activity in the nervous system. And I felt that there was a, you know, a revolution coming um, by you know, using optical methods we could at first monitor and, and eventually during my postdoc managed to manage manipulate the activity of neurons. So I felt really intrigued by the understanding the neuronal code. Okay, but this was at a bachelor's level, so that, that's when you first uh, found out about uh, neuroscience or before? Yeah, so I think I was, I was uh, really intrigued by biodiversity and then understanding how, you know, this phenomenon, for instance, how um, when uh, um, some species of fish are um, in the wild and there is, uh, you know, like all the males who die, um, one female is actually able to change from female to male. Yes. Um, and I was thinking like, oh my God, how can it be that we're able to detect a change in a group and to have like a completely new yes. <laughs> uh, transformation of the, of the body induced by the nervous system, right? So right. I felt like there was a, a lot of mystery to, to identify. And I think I felt also at ease with the level of... Um, you know, conceptualization and interdisciplinarity that was necessary in the field of neuroscience compared to other fields of biology. I felt like really with the fact that I, I came from a family of physicists, so I had a, I really enjoyed math myself. I really wanted to go in a, in a, in a field where we could have some theory combined with experiments. Okay, mm. that's mm. super interesting. Mm. And so you did your bachelor's uh, at Ecole Normale in uh, biology, biophysics? Yeah. And, uh, and then how, when did you decide you wanted to go to graduate school? Um, so I, at that time, I was one of the first students who insisted to go from the first year I was there uh, abroad for my uh, internship. Um, and so I went abroad right away. I, um, 
I really loved, um, you know, the Sherlock Holmes like part of science mm -hmm. of having an enigma. Mm -hmm. um, so my very first project was analy analyzing the distribution of uh, of uh, plaques in Alzheimer, like beta, uh, you know, a beta and tau, and how they form uh, uh, those structure in the brain. And um, and I immediately made it quantitative, and I really enjoy like you know learning how to code. So okay. I was really tuned by that and then it was pretty obvious that I wanted to continue the solving enigmas that's really what turned me on a lot in biology you know? so then graduate school was the obvious next step <laughs> yeah it was pretty clear that I wanted to be in a, in a place where I could like solve enigma related to biology yeah, yeah okay and so then for your PhD that's when you got interested in uh, optical tools to study the nervous system Yeah, so, so in, in the choice I made at each step, the grad school, the postdoc, and then when I started my own lab, I, I really always look for this kind of interface where I can have uh, development of techniques that enable to solve uh, and to look at new phenomenon in, uh, mm -hmm. in typically in the nervous system, but in the behavior as well. Or, so during my, like to choose my PhD, I was really interested to find a, a lab where I could have this freedom to develop new approach approaches and and try to really uh, get them to to teach us something about neuroscience and the, the place where I found the most freedom was uh, the lab of Didier Chatney uh, who is now in Sorbonne University but he used to be in the Institute Physique in Strasbourg mm -hmm. and it was a very very free place where you could do really almost anything you wanted. Uh, That sounds so cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so in a few sentences, what was your PhD project? So um, Didier had, um, had been going a few years before to uh, Rockefeller, where he had started a, to, to try to establish a protocol of light lithography, where he was uh, patterning different buffer, hydrophilic and hydrophobic, on a glass substrate. Um, and the idea was to control, like, by doing that, the adhesion of cells and maybe eventually with neurons try to direct their connectivity. And so we had done just one year as a sabbatical. And when I came, I took over this project working with uh, another researcher called Laurent Bourdieu, who mm -hmm. is now also at Ecole Normale. And, um, and the idea was to control the connectivity of neural networks. And because I was, I was trained in biology in Ecole Normale, I could like bring, you know, the immunohistochemistry to check which one was excitatory or inhibitory. And then I really wanted to play with the size of the network and see by developing electrophysiology by myself in their lab, it was a biophysics lab where they were doing mainly single molecule experiments of DNA and RNA. Um, I actually managed to like, you know, build a setup uh, to do electrophysiology, getting advice for people around. Um, and then I recorded from these neurons and I've shown in fact, uh, for that we could have a good method to pattern the connectivity. And now this method is very used for people who do cell biology and try to understand, like, you know, the architecture and the role of different uh, filaments and uh, actin myosin and, and motors in the cell. Um, but on my side, I was really interested by the neural network. So by controlling their connectivity and the number of neurons, I looked at their activity and realized that there was an homeostatic principle that independent of the size of the network, you had like a very similar level of spontaneous activity that was uh, going on. And then I looked at the role of inhibitory neurons and how they could shape the dynamic of the network by forming like small islands. Uh, so it was very disconnected from 
you know, the integrative biology, mm -hmm. it, was, it was very far because it was on a dish in vitro. But what was really fun for me is that I learned how to do lithography. I learned how to do cell culture with like, you know, glia cover slip on top. I learned how to do uh, patching by, you know, setting up the system by myself and then doing the immunostochemistry. And then I talked with physicists to make model of the, uh, of the activities that we had. Uh, and so somehow I managed to actually really learn a lot of things. But the one thing that I learned, I think the most is really to, to be able to start a project on your own, you know, yes. to be really feeling like you're on your own and you need to make it happen for yourself. Um, it was very lonely sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> because I was in the ground floor and I was contributing to build a two photon. We were in a dark room all day. Um, and I was most of the time by myself. Uh, so it was pretty lonely, but somehow it was an experience that if you resist and you don't give up, you learn a lot from. So I'm very well. thankful <laughs> to my PhD yeah. advisor for and that. It, and it sounds like a lot of work and that you could actually uh, integrate biology and then with your colleagues that were physicists, create something new. Yeah, so. exactly. You know, that was, I think that, that was really the, uh, the goal and um, yeah, it felt like, um, yeah, it felt like also science was a lot more fun if you could bring people together. And so after that, I actually left to do one year in Asia where I went to, to act as, a, uh, as an instructor in schools to build experiments for teaching kids uh, in junior high school and primary school how to learn science from experiments. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and I really wanted to go into something collective where I could, you know, bring something and interact a lot with people because I had missed that a lot. Wow, okay. <laughs> and after a very short time, I realized I really was missing, like it was pretty clear, the scientific, uh, you know, excitement, challenge and intrigue. Um, and that, um, in fact, I realized also that every field were, you know, similar, that, you know, you had like, you know, issues to deal with and human, you know, social challenges and politics mm -hmm. uh, and that I, I, I really wanted to go back to academia. So after a year, I, I came back and, uh, and started a postdoc in, uh, in the US. Yes, so that, that's super interesting. I didn't know about that uh, that year off of academia, but it sounds mm. like a really interesting. It thing. really helped to set your mind because if you know um, if you know exactly why you do what you do, and if you decide for yourself, this is really what I care about. Uh, without the influence of other people who are your mentor, your friends, uh, whatever, um, you you actually really find yourself. And then what is really I think very powerful is that you have. Um, no more doubt uh, and then you just go for it you know and these trends of going for it is what I think helped me a lot afterwards so it's funny just to do a digression because you know now many students in the last two years I was probably on 10 PhD committee and half the student uh, in particular but not only the very talented one mm -hmm. um, take off and do exactly the same thing I've yes. been doing <laughs> well they go for one year of hiking or biking or you know mainly biking I've seen but a lot of hiking too uh, across South America or in Asia and um, and what is interesting is that uh, 
I think I think actually it can it can bring a lot to these people back. Mm-hmm. Having done the same experience myself, I think that it really helps you to suddenly step back, step back and think like, why do I do what I'm doing? What do I really care about? Mm-hmm. And then to come with a clear intention, you know, um, because then having this uh, clarity gives you so much strength. It's amazing, you know. You know what you care for, what do you, why do you do what you do, and uh, you know that you know the rest and the alternatives are not, at least in my case, we are not brighter than science, okay. you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, and so then you went to UC Berkeley for yes. your postdoc. Yes. So tell us about that. How, how did you choose the lab that you were going yeah. to join? How was the transition from PhD so to postdoc? So I'm going to share something that I see with a lot of grad students as well. So I choose my I chose my uh, postdoc initially one year before I finished my PhD uh, because I was in this mindset of I really want to anticipate what's coming and I want to know. And the decision I made at that moment was very, you know, narrow and close to what I had tried during my PhD. And I felt like by going to a lab where was Moming Poo was pushing for, you know, spectaming dependent plasticity, um, somehow it was really making sense with what I had developed because we could do, you know, a good complementation and try to see how this plasticity propagates in the network. Mm-hmm. It was one paper where someone had done triple batch clamp recording and showed <laughs> that it could propagate, but it was not very clear how synaptic plasticity could propagate in neural networks. Mm-hmm. And so initially I got this offer and the PI uh, was very open to me doing what I wanted and then the you know the situation economical and uh, grant related change for the lab and it became more narrow and I realized that um uh, people in this very competitive environment had, uh, for instance, one postdoc was male, um, hadn't seen his baby born in the hospital yet when I visited because he had to resubmit the paper in nature and he was not at the hospital. Wow. <laughs> and I was myself uh, pregnant. Okay. And then I realized, like, mm, if I actually go back to that place, how am I going to be able to deliver? Yeah. And so I felt like, you know, maybe I need to look for something else for myself. Yeah. And somehow I think that, to be very honest with you, it was almost an opportunity because I would have done the immediate succession of what I had, I, w- I had like, in mind before instead of stepping back again and thinking, what do I really want to do? And then I realized oh, I really want to go in an integrated system. I want to go in mm-hmm. vivo. I want to study much more complex animals mm-hmm. and not in vitro. And so I, I went and interviewed with Mario Garandini. Yes. Uh, in, I was working in cats at the time. And then I went to interview with Alison Duke, who was working in uh, birds, uh, who sadly passed away since. And then I went to interview with... Um, Noam Sobel was working in humans. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed with the three of them, they all offered me a job. And then I decided that, uh, even though I was very tempted by the cat experiment, I decided to go in humans. Mm-hmm. And I've done a first postdoc where Noam, after a year, had an offer to go back to Israel. And he, I couldn't really, uh, for personal reason, move myself to Israel. But um, I managed to do you know, a project in his lab that taught me 
that studying human is fascinating and I really hope that I will be able to do some of that in, in the future. Um, but it also taught me that with all the skills I had learned from my PhD where I had learned how to code, I learned how to put a setup together, I learned how to analyze the activity of population of neurons and looking at how you know the network dyna dynamics were set by parameters of network. I was very far from that in, a, in my mm -hmm. postdoc in humans and everything was you know, very far from the population and cellular okay. level that I wanted to mm -hmm. see yes. <laughs> <laughs> with electrophysiology or imaging techniques. So I think I took the departure of Noam, even though it was a very stressful experience because I had a baby. My husband was a grad student, so he was like going to be there for five years. Um, and we had no alternative. We couldn't stay in the country without a job. Like I didn't have ways to... Um, you know, pay the bill if I yes. didn't have a job. So that was very stressful. Um, but I took it as an opportunity to rebound and find a, a project that would really take full advantage of my skills and mm -hmm. match well what I had learned during my PhD to now apply it to, you know, an integrated system in vivo. Wow, yeah. it, it sounds like a big challenge. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, you know, it, it is time where I see a lot of young people facing the situation now where things are very unstable and something, you know, suddenly change and you have to readjust. And I think it's true for, you know, science is going to thrive from having diverse people coming from different backgrounds, from different culture, yes. from different gender, from different orientation, from like, you know, we all benefit, we're smarter together if we're different uh, and so I think that uh, it's really important to not give up and the people who um, who are indeed uh, you know feeling like a little bit left out or not really fitting with the culture of a place or I think they, they need to really realize that they need to find the right space where they can be themselves mm -hmm. and uh, and thrive yeah Okay, and yeah. so for for the research for your postdoc, then how how did things turn? How can yeah. you describe also yeah. your project so or I, your projects? Yeah, your so there were two things that happened that made me realize that um, I, I uh, first thing I, I realized that um, with like this. Uh, uh, really fascination of mine in the optical methods from the beginning and the fact that we could use like to photon microscopy to do optical sectioning deep in the brain that we could use methods uh, to to have genetically encoded indicators. Um, I, I really wanted to go in a transparent model organism. And so I realized when I was like searching in the transition phase um, that I had probably a, a few months, I realized that I really wanted to go into a transparent model and then zebrafish looked like very appealing. Mm -hmm. I initially thought that I, I will uh, study be inspired by the work of Gilles Laurent and how they proposed with Rainer Friedrich and others that uh, the correlation was used to um, decode like the olfactory, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, make uh, olfactory discrimination. I, I felt like, okay, I need to study this during navigation in a transparent animal. And so I initially thought I will do zebrafish and study zebrafish. And then I remembered that... Um, when I just arrived in the U.S., my husband is uh, from MIT and there was a show and tell from MIT. Okay. And there was one very young postdoc who had come to the stage at the very end of the show and tell where people were showing how you can like build a catapult of a, you know 10 meter size or <laughs> how do you explode you know whatever in the microwave there was a lot of like game and project that were for fun at the very end there is this uh, 
you know, young man who comes uh, in the on the stage and speaking very uh, quietly and says, you know, I'm really excited to share this with you. I put together this project. It just took me like, you know, even less than a hundred hours of work. Um, when I was bored during my postdoc, I was not so in- into my project. I, I was searching the literature thinking, you know, it would be so cool if we could activate neurons with light. Um, and then I... I realized that the paper came in cell that showed that there was an opsin, there was a channel and we could use that opsin to activate neurons with light. Yes. So I contacted the team and then I got one person in my lab to do cell culture. I got another one to transfect the cells, another one to record the cells. And um, and all together, we actually found that, look at this, that with one light pulse, we can actually get spiking. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because the people who were in the audience were not neuroscientists at all. And so they were kind of like, okay, yeah, why not? Whatever, you know. And me, I was like, wow, <laughs> this is so cool. Yes. <laughs> if we can do that, it's going to be a completely different game. Yes. So it was like uh, probably 2005 yes. when it happened. It was just when I was starting my postdoc. And then when my PI, you know, I'm so told me he was moving to Weissman, then I was like, okay, so... I should go in a transparent animal. I should take advantage of those new mm-hmm. techniques. And so instead of changing uh, universities and going to Stanford where Deserot and, and uh, yes. Ed Boyden were, I I decided to to look and uh, saw that Udi Isaacoff in Berkeley had developed an alternative approach that was very elegant uh, together with Dirk Trauner and Richard Kramer. They had come up with chemo-optogenetics where mm-hmm. they were using the little azobenzene molecule that can change conformation with light in a reversible manner and attach on one side typically an agonist of a receptor, but it can also be an antagonist. And on the other side, a malleamide function that you can attach to a cysteine in a protein of interest. And so what they did is that they transformed um, a receptor, uh, an AMPA receptor for glutamate that is called IGLUR6, and they had changed it to adjust a single cysteine in the right position so that when the molecules attach, Mm -hmm. it can activate with light the receptor by bringing the agonist in the pockets, in the binding pocket. So it was very elegant. And then I felt, oh, this is so cool. (laughs) So I went to the Aitakov and asked him if he could um, host me for my postdoc. I had my fellowship already. And I was this strange person who had done cell culture in vitro, looking at (laughs) networks in in a PhD in a physics lab, and then who had moved to to looking, you know, to investigate olfaction in humans. Um, so I think, you know, I was free. I think it's where he took me. I was like, oh, she's free. She has a fellowship. Why not? <laughs> so he took me and then uh, it became very exciting because then I could really use what I had learned in my PhD to build, set up and to do stuff from scratch. But now with a new goal, which was to to really investigate the circuits uh, to their activity and manipulate the activity to understand uh, how they contribute to behavior. And so in order to make this possible, I reached out to the lab of Harvick Bayer, who at that time was in UCSF in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And he had a postdoc, Filippo Del Bene, um, who was also you know, working, starting very, very similar time than me. And, um, and he had generated the first um, transgenic line expressing this receptor, mm-hmm. but nothing was done. They had like, you know, it was just injected and we had to screen it. So we did everything together and uh, and it, it became a very, you know, very good friendship together, in fact. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, that's, yeah. and then you could go back to your love for fish also. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so I never even like, you know, 
yes. thought about it. Yes. But I've carried my whole adult life a fish on my neck that comes from Tunisia yes. and is bringing good luck. And okay. uh, and it's true that uh, I didn't consciously think about it. But then when I look back, I'm thinking, wow, it all made sense, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yes, no, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, so it's funny, huh? The necklace you carried with you brought you back to to fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, I really, I really do care about transparent species. And these uh, these days, I, I read a lot of stories to my kids about animals, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm I'm doing today, like you know, in the in the week, I'm doing a lot of axolotl and uh, salamanders. Wow! And I'm thinking like, <laughs> oh, I really want to go into those. They are so cool. They are so cool. <laughs> they are really. And some cool. of them are transparent, and they can regenerate their entire limbs. You know, and they have to do like swimming and walking. So it's a very interesting model. Yeah. For neuroscience, that's true. That's a really interesting model. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, I guess then at some point you had uh, you applied to positions to become a PI, or um, how how did your transition as for a group leader? Yeah. Occur. So it's something that I want to say because I'm very surprised when I talk to young people and they tell me. Uh, I know, I know that you know very on in, in their PhD or in their interview for a PhD. When you ask them what their long-term perspective, they say like, oh, I absolutely want to be a PI. And for me, for me, it was really not like that. It mm -hmm. was like I, I never really wanted to be a PI. Like I didn't think about it consciously. Mm -hmm. What I, I wanted was to do science. You know, I wanted to really continue the fun, mm -hmm. like having the fun and freedom to study what I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and so. It didn't occur to me that it was my goal. But then when I was in, in the US, it was extremely competitive and you had to protect yourself and fight for yourself because they were not always like, let's say, respect of ethics and rule about, you know, this is your work, it's protected, we're not going to release it before you know and you agree on. Yes. And I felt a lot of, um, there was clearly a lot of uh, competition and a lot of uh, of um, pressure and mm -hmm. attitude that were not fantastic, to be honest. Yes. <laughs> um, and so... Instead of uh, deciding that I would go away again, uh, I felt like, you know, I'm not gonna fall because of this poor attitude. I felt like I actually want to do science uh, by creating a good spirit with people that I value, both for their, their scientific mind, but also for their person, like for who they are. And so I decided that the main, you know, like you know the common um, um, the core kind of principle of my scientific um, trajectory would be to to bind people with camaraderie to bring them together to solve problems instead of what I had experienced to be alone during my PhD very much or to be even in competition with mm -hmm. other people around you in my postdoc. And I felt like, you know, what I want is I want to create this environment where people can really help each other. And together, they're solving a puzzle. They're figuring out something. Mm -hmm. And by bringing this support and bringing this understanding and this feeling that you can trust each other, um, we can go way beyond. You know, that's really something that's actually 
really give me sense like and satisfaction you know it's yes. where i feel like i can really bring something different to science you know so for me it's a very important principle and um and that's really uh, to be honest the biggest challenge not only like i think for my for my lab because you can you know you can you know try to uh, spearhead a spirit and make sure that people are agreeing to that spirit when you have your own lab but also for the field right to really bring people to to say well let's solve this big question together because we can really use our smartness and our expertise in a complementary manner instead yes. of racing for the low hanging fruit mm-hmm. you know so i'm much more i'm much more interested by that Okay. And it's not always easy. <laughs> yes, so <laughs> yes, so I was going to ask you for um, what was your biggest challenge, and I, I mean, you already shared a bit your, the challenge uh, with the yeah. For uh, me, going it's, it's the, the challenge US. of uh, yeah. So I, I did I did have the challenge to when I was younger to realize that um, I couldn't change the people around me, but I could change the way I you know respond to their attitude, and so I decided to to really. Um, protect myself by sticking to my principle and to try to really stay. I felt like honesty in the way I do science, honesty in the way I interact with people is a way to find like, you know, truth and also freedom, you know? Absolutely. And so that's that's been my kind of light of path. Um, and then something that comes out, uh, even though we're still in 2022 and we have a lot of discussion about it, is that... Um, I realized that with all my good intention of bringing people together based on their scientific interest and based on their, you know, um, alternative way of thinking about problems, um, I realized that there is a whole game of uh, politics that happens at very early on small groups. Um, and so what I try, what I try to do is uh, still work in progress, but is really try to bring people to an understanding of their unconscious bias and mm-hmm. the fact that deeply inside of each of us there is a little bit of a call for homophilia, you know, that you like people like you. Yes. And that this call for homophilia, that, you know, if we're a woman is going to be incarnating in sorority, which mm-hmm. helping other women, uh, can, uh, can actually... Um, you know, lead to a bias that makes you not see the other people, the people who don't come from the same, you know, experience, mm-hmm. who don't come from the same background, who don't have the same, you know, uh, social uh, rising or um, ethnic ethnics or like, you know, like any kind of, uh, of diversity. And I realized that um, I think it's really something that I deeply, deeply care for. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, it's a, an exercise and a, an active, uh, you know, uh, I think, contribution that each of us need to do yes. um, in order to be really thoughtful about how we, we really bring people together, valuing their difference to really come up with new solutions to those like fun enigmas that we have to solve yes. in science, you know. <laughs> so that's really what I, I deeply care about. And... Uh, and I must say that I think, yeah, it's, it's really what carries me because it gives me the hope that uh, if we manage to find ways, um, not only we will going to solve the scientific enigma, but we can also, you know, it's really an image of what we need to solve as a society with the challenge that society and humanity is facing today. So 
That's very much mm-hmm. my... That's super important, for <laughs> yeah. sure. And so yeah. has it been hard for you as a PI to keep these values in your team? How was How is it to have... Because you have not a, not a big team, but also not a small team. It's yeah. quite a... a Um, yeah, it's like a, a big family. I mean, it's, it's 15 people, but I do really manage only now because we have a. I have the. the I'm really grateful to have a, a fantastic scientist, Yasmin Cantobelarif, who is a researcher in my team now, and okay. she has her own group in the group. The okay. idea is to evolve in a cooperative by stabilizing the position of great postdoc like Yasmin um, and uh, and others in the future uh, to work in a cooperative mode with this spirit in mind. Uh, so that's really what I'm looking for. In the next you know five ten years mm-hmm. um, and so in that in that spirit I think that uh, uh, I've really tried to be careful to to explain and to make it clear that those values were important to me mm-hmm. um, it's been very hard to accept when people didn't want this value and reje- were rejecting them it's mm-hmm. something that happened to me in 2022 um, and I had to accept well we disagree uh, you know it's uh, it, we cannot all agree mm-hmm. <laughs> but I realized that sticking to those values was what was giving sense to me and I tried really to really bring people together even though they don't think the same they don't agree on things so that's something that I really care for um, but on the long term I think that um, I think that it's really something that I think help us to you know understanding the difference that we have among um, each other and the fact that we all, all have our own histories that explain how we act and how we react to things mm-hmm. I think it's really a, a key element to a not to to really deeply understand how we can uh, change collectively to address uh, the issue of climate change. You know, so that's really where mm-hmm. I think that my my role as a scientist mm-hmm. is very much to um, to teach the rigor and the logic and how you can build strong scientific evidence uh, to give the Uh, ability to people to go into the unknown and, and feel like secure that they have the right you know tools to indeed like you know progress but then um, also um, to really like you know stay connected to the to the biology but also to nature so that you feel like you know um, that the The cause are actually all working together. You know, mm-hmm. that's really that's really what I'm I'm trying to to work uh, on is the sensitivity that we need to keep. We need to stay connected to this sensitivity, this inner um, fascination and love for uh, biology and biological system, and in particular animals and plants, <laughs> to to actually really do the right thing for ourselves. You know, and for for the world. <laughs> it's, it's a really important cause, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and so I'm I'm a bit curious then how so you were working with zebrafish and uh, you had a, a lot of different methods that you had applied during uh, your um, career. How did you decide scientifically what was going to be the theme of your lab and how if you can you talk a bit about the projects that you have ongoing? Yeah. Now? So I come from a big family, you know, I'm, I'm one out of six kids of the same family and so I knew uh, very well how to uh, you know, I think what helped me and you know, I'm 45 years old now, so what helped me in my generation was to uh, to know I had four brothers and they were like, you know, 
they are awesome people, but they were also fighting a lot and they were beating you up. And, you know, I feel like I learned uh, from this how to sometimes uh, impose myself. Um, but also, um, um, I learned how, um, in my case, uh, and not everyone would be doing that, but I, I learned how to look for something they were not really looking at and pick that up <laughs> and so in my in my career in fact it's how I I operated because everyone in Debrafish was really uh, studying uh, 95% of people uh, were studying vision at that time mm-hmm. um, and the animal is transparent very easy to use a projector to stimulate and show you know movies and mm-hmm. tribes and and so um, and so most of the effort in the field was going for this and doing whole brain imaging where you can resolve almost but not quite every cell and look at their activity in the brain Um, but I felt like I wanted to take the alternative path so I wanted to go with uh, you know understanding that there was a power of genetics I wanted to on the contrary really use the fact that there is conservation of circuits among vertebrates Mm -hmm. to target very specific circuits and then look at when they are active during the behavior and what happens if we manipulate them, either activating them bazooka 1.0 optogenetic experiment, uh, or when we silence them during the behavior. And uh, what what made us successful in this uh, journey was the fact that at that time, when I started um, working on, on optogenetic integrity, she was 2006, um, and people used optogenetics uh, to just show what we already knew from methods where we are using electrical stimulation. And so our lesion, you know, uh, to, to silence the circuit, they would do it with optical tools, optical uh, actuators. Um, and so what I did is to take it to something we didn't know, to go into a region where nobody had any clue. So it was very risky, mm-hmm. but we use those tools that are super powerful, and then we see what happens. And from what happens, we can learn that there is something interesting or not. Mm-hmm. So this was like kind of my approach. And I think because I was not using them to show something we kind of knew and confirm it, I went into the unknown. What was really nice is that it gave me this uh, complete freedom because then when I was starting my lab there was like you know from the 1.0 optogenetic experiments where I just come with a bazooka that is a big spot of light in this case mm-hmm. on the tail of the brafish where the light loire uh, is expressed in a very specific cell type in the spinal cord and I, I found ways to get the mag the little molecules that you know, need to bind to the receptor mm-hmm. uh, by bathing or injecting in the in vivo um, I actually saw a completely unexpected result and mm-hmm. from this surprise and I felt like okay now the shadow comes down so we see that by activating this cell that look like a biologic internal or a or not clear I can elicit oscillations so the full swimming sequence okay it means that there is uh, a projection of this neuron onto the oscillator in the spinal cord mm-hmm. and we have a way to investigate what is the oscillator if we can turn it on like that mm-hmm. and then understand what the function of those cells are so it was very natural what was coming because everything was free for me I could do all of it and that's I think what put me in a very nice situation what was not easy is that nobody was doing zebrafish that yes. way with optical methods trying to look at behavior and how you know activity is encoded in the nervous system and what happens if I activate this or that so it meant that I couldn't join a lab I had to really start a new lab 
And that's where I've been very, you know, uh, grateful to the Paris Brain Institute to host me when I was just coming out from my postdoc and giving giving me the means to to start completely new, uh, you know, experiments involving recording, vertical sectioning and manipulation with methods for patterning light in 2D and 3D, and then a lot of high speed imaging for for behavior. So, well, it was really a an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's that's really interesting, and it's it, it really. Uh, it feels like uh, even though you explore different things, that um, there was always a, a bit of a, a path there. And uh, that's yeah, uh, it's end. really it's really interesting how life is that you don't understand, but there are recurrent motifs. And mm -hmm. when you look back, you're like, wait, it's happening to me more than once, you know. And if you notice those and you think, uh, wait, why is it happening to me more than once? It actually really uh, it's it's really striking how. You know, you, there is something that drives you um, that is not conscious, but is very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look back, you feel like, wow, it all makes sense. <laughs> it's the yes. same for the way to, you know, to do my family. I have three kids and I didn't, uh, I never thought like exactly the same way I told you I didn't think I was going to be a PI as a yes. goal. I never thought, okay, my goal is to have a big family. I mm -hmm. never thought this way. I could see people thinking like, I need to have kids before 30 years old. And I was thinking, this is weird. <laughs> Why? There's no reason to. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my case, uh, by the end of my PhD, in fact, I uh, I really met uh, my significant other and, you know, I took him with me. I untrained him in, uh, <laughs> in Asia. Um, and that was pretty clear that, you know, when you're really happy with someone And you can be free with the other one. There is mm -hmm. no constraint. There is no control. Um, that's when it's it's like you know it's the same. What I explained to you in science, right? It's uh, it's like it's like fun. And um, and then I ended up you know having three kids, just like <laughs> <laughs> like, like no big deal, but well, for that, sure a yeah, challenge. That's, that's really planned. Uh, even though when I had the first one, when I started my postdoc, and the second one, to be very honest, I realized that. I had a little bit of a fear to get my job because I realized mm -hmm. that if I don't get a job, I might not be able to pursue my passion. And so on the second one, I was less uh, fearless than for the first one. <laughs> And I kind of really, um, you know, became pregnant when I had my first job offer. Was like, okay, I'm going to be able to make it. It was in Japan. It was not exactly, but I was really excited about it. I was just like, I'll take anything. I just want to continue my, you know, to leave my passion for research. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And uh, I guess we are a bit um, running Over out of time, time. but I, I think we can finish something um, with something more light. And uh, there is different questions that uh, I could ask you, but I think this one is interesting, which is what would you be doing if you were not a neuroscientist? Ah, <laughs> so Uh, when I was uh, when I was uh, in high school, I actually really wanted to be an artist um, because my mind doesn't think um, exactly like I need to learn differently than what we learn in the textbook. I I need to like collect information in a different way and bring them together. I can't learn by heart. I hate I hate that. It was really mm -hmm. hard for me to do that part. <laughs> I have to learn in an alternative manner. And so I loved uh, I loved being creative in drawing I've always been drawing and also uh, making movies and uh, I really wanted to be an artist and I think if I had uh, if I had um, that freedom I would have actually uh, 
probably done famous and I would have tried to be uh, a movie director. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> My mother didn't let me. She was this generation. She's uh, just from after the war. And mm-hmm. uh, she just told me, uh, if you're an artist, you're going to be you're going to be in the hands of a man. Uh, you're not going to be independent. You're not going to have that freedom. You need to be free. You shouldn't be an artist. And I think sometimes back, I'm thinking like I would probably if I really, really, really wanted to, I would probably have just gone over that rule. But the truth is that because I've seen the you know the beauty and the intrigue in, in biological system, uh, it kind of you know wiped away the, the feeling. Mm-hmm. But I always think about it like oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> yes, it would have been much fun. But I guess in a way you could find a way to explore uh, your creativity through science. So. Exactly. And what we do is that we've done a couple of movies about. What is it like to be a biologist? And interacting with people who make movies to do that was mm-hmm. really fun. Okay. And I tried to keep that connection. I also had it at FIAC an interaction with an artist who, who made like, you know, pieces inspired by our work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a street artist. It was really fun. So I'm trying to find the opportunities they, when they come to actually get uh, to do this together um, with artists. Because I think there is something, it's where I actually differ a lot from from my parents' generation, I think there is something deeply similar in the process mm-hmm. of creativity and that, in fact, staying connected to your emotion as a scientist, to some extent, like you don't want to be completely emotional, but to, to feel like, what do you really care for as a person? What really animates you? What do you want to solve? And to stay connected to that like inner voice, the little child in you who was curious and yes. had some passion already. I feel like that's really the key to find you know, your path and, uh, and your own satisfaction, independent from the recognition uh, of people and people around you your own and that's what makes you strong you know well that's that's beautiful uh, i think we we should finish now okay thank you so much thank for you. taking the time to talk to me today thank you Margarita. it was a great pleasure it was really fun for thank me you, too bye bye, bye. bye.